Hello, Tribe. This podcast is sponsored by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy, longevity, and keeping us healthy and enhanced in our lives. Four Sigmatic makes a wide variety of blends, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixir, hot cacao, matcha, and superfood blends. I believe strongly in this company. I've been taking Four Sigmatic and it has changed my life. I can't even begin to start my day without a cup of Four Sigmatic in front of me. Right before I meditate or I do anything from speaking engagements to traveling to doing healing on people or just going out in the world and sharing my immense love for this planet and for everyone on it. I feel lit times 1,000. It is literally shifting the energy in my being. I'm talking firing off those synapses, kicking my body into high gear by awakening those electrons, spinning those electrons, getting my body so on point with my focus, my creativity, and my energy. One of the products that I love the most is the Lion's Mane's Coffee. Lion's Mane promotes productivity and focus, and it was known by shamans and monks who take that into their body for meditation, focus, and clarity so they can really tune in to the energies and absorb the knowledge and information that is coming to them from the spirit world. And as you know, on Ancient Wisdom Today, we like to keep it lit all day every day. And how do we do that? By creating magic. And what is magic? Magic is turning up that energy, living our truth, honoring who we are, and doing what's right for us so that we can live a beautiful, powerful, easy, playful, fun, joyous, and just the most powerful life in this now time. So if you don't have Four Sigmatic on your shelf, in your bag, in your briefcase, on the airplane with you, right before you speak, whatever it is that you do, you have to get this. Even for your kids, for your teenagers, pop it in their in their bag before they go to school. This is the drink that literally makes you think. It is powerful and it is enriched with so many powerful mushrooms. And these adaptogens are literally changing the lives of people. And remember, I've talked to you many times before in the past about mushrooms and the networking system of mushrooms when it gets into your body and just really taking your body to a whole new level. So if you're interested in learning more about this amazing company, because I just really want you to know, Tribe, that everything I share with you, I share with you from my heart because I believe in it and I see what it has done for me and my life and all of my friends and family. Go to foursigmatic.com backslash Shaman Durek, and you will get a discount code at your checkout. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com backslash Shaman Durek for your 15% off. I love you, tribe. I love you so much. That is the reason why I choose sponsors that are in alignment and authenticity to what this tribe is about. Staying lit, staying focused, staying driven, and changing our planet.
for the good. Love you. Enjoy the share. Bye. Human beings have been sharing stories for hundreds of thousands of years, and with those stories came the emotional, spiritual, and physical knowledge of the ancients. Shaman Durek is a third-generation shaman, an evolutionary innovator, and a women's empowerment leader. He's here to bring forth the ancient wisdom of our elders to help heal and bring happiness into our modern society. We're sharing ancient knowledge in modern times in order to put the power back in people's hands. Welcome to the tribe. Hello, tribe, and welcome to Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. And I am so happy that you are here with us on today's share. You are so beautiful, so wonderful, so talented, such a genius, and you have so much energy inside of your being. You are glowing, shining, radiating light on this planet. And I'm so happy that we get to share this planet together and make amazing things happen. That's what it's about, tribe. It's about staying lit on the lit train and remembering that we are leaders and we are here to build leaders to lead the message of love forward. And when we talk about leading the message of love forward, we talk about community, we talk about tribe, and we talk about the understanding of where community and tribe stems from and how it actually builds on our planet. And so I'm so happy because on today's share, I have an amazing friend, powerful boss lady, Caroline Prothero, who was a manager to David Guetta for 17 years, has been in the music industry for 30 years, has spent all of her life focusing on music community and tribal culture to bring together a, a coexistence between all cultures and all nationalities so that we can operate in a place of love, awareness, and how do we continue to adapt our species, what's happening on earth, to a way that we can live in harmony with one another by celebration, by community, and by learning and growing with each other. She has created so many outlets for her voice and her message to be brought forth, not only just through United Nations, but also through UNICEF and so many other world organizations with world leaders, major, major artists and musicians, and all types of people from all walks of the globe to come together and really start utilizing their power, their skill, and their expertise and talent to further our species into a global community that is based in love and celebration. So welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you for being with us. Wow. Thank you, Derek. It's an honor and a privilege. Usually at home in London, I'm part of the tribe typing in and listening in. So to be able to talk and share with the tribe is um, a true privilege. It's a pleasure to have you here. So tell me, okay, so, you know, what was it like for you uh, going into the music industry? Because you went into the music industry at a time when the whole entire house music, the whole rave culture, I want to know, how did that get started? What was it like in London? What were you experiencing here now that we're here together in Ibiza? What was that like? In 1988, I lived in Manchester and as a woman or a young woman, my map of where I should be or who I should be was to be married by 21, to be a good girl and to 
follow the rules. So very English lifestyle. Very English lifestyle. And you would dress for the attention of others, um, not for your comfort, and basically to attract the husband. And already by 18, I was bored of the corporate commercial club cycle where it was pop music and the women were on the dance floor and the men walked around the outside until the slow jam. And then I heard my first house music record and it touched me in a way that I'd never been touched by music. I was into soul, I was into lyrics, I was into Motown and R&B which I still love, but it didn't have the pulse of the beat. And a friend told me about a club called the Hacienda, which was the first house music club in the north of England. And spawning from that were then illegal rave parties. And there was a subcultural movement. All these young kids, and it's pre the internet, so... We didn't have any way of communicating with each other than through certain meeting points. That was the record store and that was the club. And kind of an anti-uniform emerged and it would be dungarees. We'd grow our hair long. Girls would wear sneakers rather than what was the norm then, white stiletto heels. Nothing against heels, but this was almost like a symbol that you were part of the tribe if you were wearing wallabies or kickers or sneakers. And we would be connected through individuals who were connected to the DJ. It was very underground and it was very much word of mouth. And if you were in the tribe, you'd be given a piece of paper and that piece of paper would take you to a meeting point where you would congregate and then you'd go in convoy to a field and you would dance to this new kind of music that we'd never heard before called house music. And these scenes started in the UK, in Manchester and in London. And a massive rave culture emerged until there were 40,000, 50,000 kids congregating, unregulated, to dance in a field all night. It was anti-establishment. It went against the, um, the, the norms at that time, was all about money and capitalism, and that couldn't sustain itself. And kids couldn't access that world and there was a rebellion against it and it was called the second summer of love and um, we felt that we were changing the world that we were coming together that it was our own mini revolution the police didn't know what was going on the government didn't know what was going on and there was a massive shift in the consciousness of the kids and suddenly people weren't divided. 
they weren't divided by which football team they supported, what colour their skin was, who they loved. And we'd been kept in these boxes until this music hit. And suddenly fighting on football terraces stopped. People would have friends of different colours and religion and sexuality, which sounds now just the norm, but it didn't exist. And it was created by a movement of young people who were following a beat. And the lyrics of the songs at the time were all about togetherness, that there was a promised land, that we were all one, we were all together, which is, as I've grown and evolved, realised are the same um, thoughts and feelings as spirituality. When it, um, you know, one of the things that I find very fascinating in the whole experience when it comes to uh, realizing the culture and how things are operating in today is understanding the, you know, there is this, this beautiful uh, coalescence of energy that is looking for itself, you know, an energy that is inside each of us that's looking for its counterpart, looking for its, its, its family, its connection, its tribe. And, you know, when I was a kid, I remember house music didn't exist. And for me, it was uh, me going to a lot of goth parties. I was very into goth. I used to wear black nail polish and I had very, my hair when now because I'm bald, but I used to have very um, long straight hair because of my mother's side of the family from the Norwegian side. And I used to have like long straight hair. I'd wear these overcoats and go into these goth clubs and start dancing to goth music. And then all of a sudden one day someone said, oh, there's this music called Technotronic. And I was like, what is that? So we'd go to the club and it would be like this technotronic music. And I used to go to this, um, you know, these different clubs where you can be under the age of 18 and go. And then there was also an older side for the 21 and over. And then one day this girl comes up to me and she said, uh, there's a new music that just hit San Francisco and you have to be invited by someone. And I know this person and they, you know, you have to have a checkpoint and you have to meet someone and you have to wear a certain item on your clothes in order to get invited. And so for me, it was kind of fun because it was like, we would go to this checkpoint. We'd have to wear like a wig or something like a flower on our shirt. And then they would give us an egg and we'd take the egg to another checkpoint and hand in the egg. And they'd give us this like folded piece of paper and go to another point and get that. And then it would lead us into this, either a warehouse or a field and there would be this music and people coming together. And I used to cry a lot because I never felt growing up that I was a part of a community until I heard this music. And what this music did was it spoke to me. And I remember looking at my friends and saying to them, this is what's going to change the world if we keep it in its most purest, beautiful state. And so it's interesting that you had this, this same experience going on in, in England because I was going through that same experience as well from my point of view. And, and, you know, and we're not that far away in age um, from each other as well. So you were at uh, what you were experiencing this at what time? How old? This was, I was 18. It was 1988. So I was 14. 
Yeah. And uh, it was interesting because I even had a fake ID made so I can go to more of these events. And, you know, I have to say that it really changed my life. I had a friend named Locke who had like three sewing machines in his house and he would get on the sewing machines and tell us to bring whatever curtains, fabrics, anything we could find. And he would sew us these amazing outfits and we would go out and dress in these outfits and put on characters and dance and be a part of each other. So I, I'm, when, you're, when you're sharing this with me, I feel so emotional right now listening to this. So my question to you is, at that time, did you feel that there was a shift inside of you based on your English culture and the way that you were raised? A hundred percent. It felt like an awakening. It felt like something I'd already felt before, but there was no space for it. It didn't exist in my everyday reality. And I remember going to the Hacienda for the very first time and I walked in and it was this vacuous building with 1,000, 2,000 people dancing in unison. They weren't dancing around handbags. They weren't guys nodding at the side with a beer. Everybody moved together. And it was so hot. Everybody was wet, but nobody cared. Everybody was smiling. Everybody was hugging. And I remember clearly going to the bathroom and... I took off my white stilettos and I find my way to the stage and I danced to house music for the first time. I didn't look the part at this point. I just felt the part and nobody cared. And by the next week, I was back there like three nights, three nights every week. I left home. I moved in with a friend who was a DJ. There was just this massive feeling of, of, connectivity and the music was the medium and it broke down all these barriers that we were being contained by and like you we would make the fancy outfits we would make um like little headdresses and we would um we would be able to spot one another and this scene, it grew and it was still very underground. And four of the DJs came here to Ibiza. Um, and it was Paul Oakenfold, um, Pete Tong and Danny Ramplin who became the most famous. And the vibe on the island here was a mix of house music and and um, and all kinds of music right back to early rock and roll. But the spirit of Ibiza was that freedom. And they took that back to the UK and they started to throw parties where all the symbols were love and rainbows and light. And that helped people. Then there were more signposts. You knew how to get there and it could get bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you knew it, it was, it, it just, to use your word, lit. And it lit so quickly all over Europe, but it was still an underground scene and an underground culture. But when you came to Ibiza, it was the predominant culture because everybody came from Germany, France, Spain, UK, Italy to 
come together if you felt like you were part of this tribe. And I knew from the first second that I went to the Hacienda, there was no industry, you know. I I, I was a, a young girl who was expected to do, to be a teacher maybe, or if I was really good, a lawyer, um, or whatever. But there wasn't a music industry. I knew nothing. The dance music industry didn't exist and the traditional music industry was way out of my reach and beyond my consciousness. I didn't, I just knew what I heard on the radio. And the same thing happened when I, the same feeling happened when I came to Ibiza. I can remember sitting, watching my first sunset, this is in 1990, and saying, I don't care how much money I make. I don't care how, I don't care what I do. I just want to be part of this. And I made a commitment as the sunset and to myself that I'm not going to fit into anybody's box. I'm just going to run and follow this music. And at, at this time, everybody thought I was crazy because it was a tiny underground scene. But it just had so much energy and power and passion. I did it and I followed it and 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 nobody could have predicted it became the size or the movement that it is today um but that is what happened so basically you followed the beat i followed the beat and in following the beat uh how did your family take to it i'm really blessed to have a mother who will support me whatever I do. The only thing she didn't like was the way I started to dress. But <laughs> she, she loved the little nipped waist and, and she gets her own way every now and again still. But um, but she supported me. She, yes, she thought I was crazy. There was no role model. There was nobody who'd done it. DJs were people that were on the radio and that was it. And there was nobody in my family, none of my friends. I knew nobody in the music industry. So they kind of gave me rope and said, you go, you follow your dreams. And if it goes wrong, we'll keep that college application on hold. (laughs) I love it. You know, when I was young and... um also, you know, I, I grew up a lot in San Francisco and Hawaii, and I spent a lot of time in San Francisco. A lot of my friends to this day are DJs and started from the culture of like leaving whatever job they had and going into becoming DJs. And I remember Yena came over from UK and Garth, and they... um they created these uh, full moon parties mm. on the beach and we would all go to Bonnie Dunes and it was like the thing we did all the time is we would get with our friends and we'd all go get our blankets and we'd go to Bonnie Dunes and they would have this sound system in the, right in front of the ocean and on the sand and people would be dancing together and hugging and talking and sharing and I was wearing bell bottoms at the time. I was very much, I was very, very skinny and I used to wear these... Native American um, 
uh, Apache type uh, tops with the fringes and bell bottom pants and boots. And I wore like really cool belt buckles and stuff. And I left my chest open through the, through the Apache top. And I would go out and meet all the most amazing people. And literally, I felt that there was something greater that was happening on a more cosmic level. I remember there were these alien uh, raves that came out in the States and about ETs. And when the funny thing was, is that a lot of my friends would say to me, you know, oh my God, we're having such an amazing time. Can you feel how amazing this is? Can you feel the love? And I said, yes, but what's even more amazing is that there's other beings watching us. They're watching if we're learning and understanding about community and tribe. And really understanding what dance and tribal energy is. And one of the things that I always tell people is that, you know, when you're dancing, you're generating a very powerful source of energy that in shamanism we look at as a a very um, powerful driven source. And if you have an intention of where you want that energy to go, be it to someone who's sick in the hospital, or if you have money problems, or if you have a difficulty bringing love into your life, or if you're dealing with some health issue, or whatever it may be, you can dance and celebrate that into fruition and really bring healing. And so a lot of the tribal culture, when you look at tribes, dance and celebration is a huge part of tribal culture, as well as community in that. So if someone needed to get pregnant in a tribe, the chief would call upon the shaman to come and speak to everyone to have a dance ceremony that night for those who couldn't get pregnant, for those who were sick, and for those crops that have not been you know, um, you know, know, flourishing throughout the year and so forth. And so really creating this culture is really um, very, very um, evolved for our species to step into. But my concern and what I've been noticing is now that as people are still operating in that field of consciousness, they're now toxifying it, polluting it, and really bringing it into a space where before it was light, it was love. It was this ETs are connecting with you, the rainbows, the feeling of community, the connection of spirit, like really keeping you lit. Even if you were putting certain types of medicines in your body, it wasn't to the point where you were losing that connection to community. So there's always someone there to support you and lift you and shift you out of those places. What has happened, Caroline? Well... It's a battle that um, I faced personally um, because I genuinely did get into this whole culture, as I've explained, through love and passion and togetherness and unity. And the whole thing was it didn't matter who you were who your family was, who your friends were, what your education was, how much money you had was the least of the concerns. It didn't matter. And not everything, but like most things that become insanely popular, they become corporatized. And that are still examples of festivals that have retained the ethos and the spirit. Tomorrowland is an incredible example where there's over a hundred 
um, nationalities of people congregate in um, Belgium every year with their flags and they wave it together as one and there's people dressed as fairies and as elves and and and, and aliens, as you said, and, and it's just flower power and love. But there is a dark side, you know, and I think the dark side comes down to money and and power and suddenly well it, it wasn't so suddenly gradually a lot of money and success attracts people that want to make more money and you can have very successful people who live very abundant lives and share their art form and their music and so they have all the trappings and they're still pure and the people they play to are still pure there are also other people whether it's the dj who sees the lifestyle because there's no instagram in in our day and you know when i first started working with um david getter i would drive him And you've seen how bad my driving is. Yeah. <laughs> and I would drive him in a beat-up car for three hours a night to a gig to play for so little money that we'd get one hotel room. And so we'd take that in London and I would drive three hours all the way back so I could sleep in my own bed and we could spend what he'd earned or what we'd earned on the hotel bed for him and you know he grew to be one of the biggest artists but his message is still love and there are some young DJs who are coming into the world who still want to share their their feelings their their message the universal language of love through music but there are also people that just see pictures of private jets and seven star hotels and loads of girls or if it's a, f a female dj loads of guys or a gay whatever your dream is that is projected a lot on social media and and if you come in for those reasons then the integrity isn't the same and if the message doesn't matter to you it's not going to be shared or translated with the people and that it, it's not just the DJs. It could be the promoter. It could be um, a, a corporate sponsor who wants to try and put their brand's identity over the identity of the event with their conditions. So, so you lose the authenticity and that sounds negative. It's a reality. Um, the flip side of that is it's created a lot of opportunities um, to work inside music that, that didn't exist before. And there's also always a counter. So there are, are festivals, there are clubs, there is still an underground scene that coexists. So I don't think it's a desperate situation. Um, I think it's an evolving situation, but I do still firmly believe in what the values of house music which dates back to post-disco coming from Chicago 
Detroit, um, New York, techno house, post-disco. And those values were inclusion was the main one because it was generally the misfits on the outside came together. And I do think that still exists. Um, maybe you have to look a little harder to find it. It's easy to find it here in Ibiza. And it's also easy to find, you know, maybe a more exploitative culture. You know, you touched on your um, your post today about the show of wealth in clubs and the bottle service. And on a positive side, that allows for greater production of events and the performance that everybody shares. It also involves a separation and us and them. And well, it's very divisive. It's you know? divisive, yeah. And um, it's, it's taking away, it's cutting the community in half mm. and basically saying that the rich get more privileged. I mean, I was even at, um, which I thought was very, very interesting. Last time I was in Ibiza, I, was mm. in, I, was, I met the, um, the owner of Campbell Soups and he had his birthday party at his big villa. And I thought, oh, how beautiful. Everyone is communing and having a great time. And then there was a dance floor underground. And I thought to myself, you know, I went and give him, I gave him a birthday hug and, you know, and, and, and got to mingle with some of his friends and they were very lovely and everything. But then we went understand down, it was just his birthday. We went underground to his dance floor area and it was a dance floor. And then they had their own VIP section. And I thought, who and throws a party? A, at a party. And I thought, who throws a VIP, who throws a party and creates their own VIP section? You know, and what I'm starting to see is this divisiveness that's taking place in the club culture, in the party scene. And a lot of times where I like to keep myself is into events and parties that do not have that energy, much more taken out of the club scene and still held in the forest, still held in in natural environments. Um, Like I have my friends in in San Francisco that we started this event called Sunset Campout. We started sunset where we just brought a sound system to a park and then it grew and grew and all of us put our energy in all year long a year after year carrying speakers down the stairs putting them in the trucks and carrying it you know and i can only and i only stayed with them as long as i could for because i had to go back into my who i came to be and what i came to do but it was great because just just recently before i came to ibiza i was there in the up in the mountains with them celebrating years and years and years of these amazing community of beautiful souls that come to together and now they get to take shamanic classes yoga classes they get to do sound classes um, meditation they have djs flown in from all over the world and then we have you know music by the river where we have funk and soul and all kinds of eclectic beats and it's such a beautiful community and that to me is more important than me just going into a club but the interesting thing that i find fascinating and what i love i love about what you're talking about is that it's still there However, I think that there is a certain mindset that we have to step into. You know, when we think about uh, humanity and as a whole, we look at humans um, putting up a lot of shields, a lot of walls. A lot of people are afraid to get hurt. A lot of people are afraid um, that they're not going to be accepted and loved. And so they put up shields, they put up walls, you know, and these are real things. And what happens is 
And what I find fascinating, because in shamanic culture, we say that the walls and shields that are put up can only be brought down with the right form of communication and the right form of energy, right? And what what I consider DJs now is a lot of times people are bowing to these DJs, and I can see why they're bowing to them. Because in shamanism, the way we look at DJs is we see them as alchemists. Because they're taking frequency and code, code and frequency, and merging them together, creating a symbiosis of sound and synthesis that communicates outward through sound and music to someone's body. And the body hears that and feels it and then responds back through dance. And it's really powerful, you know, and I can see why governments and why police departments and so forth try to break up these very, um, you know, I remember back in, you know, my days in the early 90s, I would, we would go to a warehouse and throw parties with my friends. And then I would, I was always the one who had to go out and speak to the cops as I unplugged the music and be like, oh no, we're just hanging out, having fun and so forth. And then they would drive away and then we plug everything back in and turn on the turntables and, you know, but even then, like, the way turntables were, it was all done on vinyl. And now when I go, I see something different. I, I don't see the people choosing the records anymore. I don't see the vinyl. I loved the, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine. She goes by um, Femme Fatale and she did a lot of parties in London and stuff. And she said, I, I, I go, why aren't you DJing anymore? And she goes, because I love vinyl. And now it's become something else, you know, with these like recording devices. Yeah, you can. I, I, I'm a vinyl junkie. And I'm a vinyl junkie too. I'm a vinyl junkie and there is a special art form. There's a DJ here called Harvey. He plays out of LA. He's based in LA, but he, he's resident here at Pikes in the summer and he's pure vinyl. And he's called the DJ's DJ and everybody reveres him. And he takes you on a journey. He'll play for eight hours. You look at, well, watches don't exist here, but it'll feel like, you know, you've gone into a zone, it could be 10 minutes, but actually it's eight hours. And, but the one thing I would say about technology is, again, I think it's, it's, um, it's something you can use to increase your um, means of communication with somebody. Music is made electronically, it can be performed electronically. I think if you look at the, um, you know, the, the, it always spins around the internet. Oh, DJs, they do a mix and they press play. Maybe some do. I've never seen one of the superstar DJs do that. There are live shows that are that have to be synced with the sound and the lights, like when you go and see a pop concert. Um, but the tools DJs have now might make the actual um, delivery easier, but the vehicle is the DJ. And it's about his selection. It's about, um, you know, you talked about when he connects or she connects um, with the crowd about how to lift the energy and how to connect with people. And that isn't, um, that isn't something you can do in advance, that you can just put something together and go, well, that's a big record and that's a big record. You can do it, but you're not 
a true DJ as a conductor or you're not an orchestrator. I like to use, you know, orchestra, uh, an orchestra as a nice parallel because they're people playing pre-recorded music. So technology can enhance the connectivity and the performance of the DJ. The, it's still a human or spiritual connection that the music makes as you talk with the frequency and the melody and the harmonies and the 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 you know the tempo of the beat the drops of the beat you know building people up the crescendo and it's still the dj who f- feeds off the crowd and responds to the crowd i always compare it to having sex mm-hmm. you know if 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 it's good you know what the other person's feeling and you know what to do to make them feel higher or to pull them back a little bit and the best DJs that I've watched some on vinyl and some on whatever machine the way they touch and they feel is the same as with vinyl but it's how they, it's almost like they're making music live by mixing it. Yeah, that's why we call it, that's why yeah. we call it alchemy. Alchemy, okay. Because alchemy is bringing different components um, to create one component that affects change, right? And or changes something, right? And when music hits the human body, it uh, communicates to the synthesis that's moving through both your mind, your emotions, your physical, and your spiritual. And then what happens is, it communicates to those areas of your body that may be locked, communicates to those areas of your body that need love, communicates to those areas of your body that is looking for connection. It may be bringing out energies that you've been locking down where you don't feel sensual or sexual, and it may pull that up. You know, And whatever it's doing, it's creating that communication. And then through the movement and, be- and behavior that comes out of you from that communication, back to the DJ, the DJ looks and sees how much more medicine you need from the from the music if it should drop if it should go high if it should hit a crescendo and make all of your cells go up all of your electrons spin faster all of your neural pathways open up and take you to states of bliss joy and happiness and then drop you back down to earth and keep you on a very low base a base um, form where you're connecting into earth energy which is very powerful and if we look at the, the rises, the highs and lows that we hear in music, there's reasons why that's happening because there is a shamanic principle that um, in tribal culture where they'll use drums and, and downbeat to connect you to earth, they'll use high um, energy to connect you to higher heavens, and they'll use middle tones to connect you to middle earth where you're in between both. And so there's points where you go real high, but if you stay up real high, um, you're just staying in that space. There has to be a moment where you come back back to earth to experience new energy, new form, new communication, new alchemy. And I think the DJ is, is telegraphing that as the orchestrator, as the alchemist, seeing, okay, everyone is responding to this medicine. Let's give them this medicine by m- merging these two energy forms together and giving them that medicine and creating that space. And what I would like to see more of, um, and I do want to talk about your, your journey with uh, David Guetta. Um, one of the things that I want to um, explore is, you know, why does everyone have to pollute their systems 
in order to get to those places? Why not operate in taking things that actually create um, a synthesis of mitochondria increase in your body? You know, opening up to these very natural herbs and things that can take you to these places without putting a chemical-based compound that is made in a very sterile type lab that is not supportive to your system. But if you utilize, you know, I'm say, but say, however, if you utilize natural herbs and certain types of resins, certain types of formulas that are created from earth energy and bring that into your body, the synthesis response versus you being on ecstasy or cocaine or, you know, alcohol is so much more different because when you're on alcohol, you're literally um, bringing your cells, your brain cells into dormant states, which means they're not getting the full, you know, um, energy through the synapses firing off through your electrons. It's actually dulling it down. So you literally become um, not fully resonant to the tones, vibrations, energy, and communication that the DJ is creating. And I think that if we can begin to create a a culture where we start bringing in raw cacao, start bringing in, you know, different types of herbs that are easy for our liver, our body, for our body's process that will take us. So when the DJ is communicating those alchemical frequencies to us, we are actually reaching higher plateaus of evolution, both unconsciously, consciously, subconsciously through every aspect of our being and taking ourselves to a whole nother level of lit. That makes a huge amount of sense. I think there is what I see as a huge awakening within the community of people who I would rave with. And as they've they've grown, you know, through the last three decades, more and more people, which is how I found you, have moved um, towards a more natural way of living. I think, you know, it's institutionalized. You know, I I can talk mainly from the UK point of view um, that alcohol is seen as a rite of passage. And it's drummed into you. You can do it when you're 18. You can do it. Like, you can drive a car. Like, it's something. <laughs> but it is. It and is, and yeah. it's put as something that you should aspire to. And I'll hold my hands up. I became, you know, I became dependent on alcohol when the industry or the experience I was having of the industry was going against my original principles and that wasn't personal to David who who, it wasn't personal to anyone it was personal only to myself and it was the way I was experiencing things and the blessing was it brought me to you and I've realized that everything that drove me to house music is what drives me to life and that I've gotten that back now so I can see what you're saying far more clearly as the truth but also observing around me um, that what you're talking about is happening. You know, I'd never heard of cacao until three years ago and now my friends are doing cacao ceremonies at parties and and I think it's 
it's about education. You know, when, so when the alcohol thing was gone, it was like, oh, we've got this new drug that it's called ecstasy or MDMA and, and you need this drug to be part of this experience. When the reality was, I went raving, I can speak again from my own experience, I went raving for years, didn't touch a thing because the feeling that, that ecstasy was true ecstasy and it was you know this pure feeling of euphoria and of and of like you know there were no thoughts it was just feelings and heartbeats racing and bodies moving in in ways that 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 was beyond my control transcendent transcendent that's the word and so I know it exists because it existed for me. And I don't know what proportion of people, you know, the uh, of the younger generation, from what I've observed, they're much greener, they're much healthier. I mean, we went, well, actually, I didn't show up, did I? But you went to a rave at Ministry of Sound, where people... Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, and there are these And what was the party... I don't remember because I didn't. It's a sober party. It's a sober party. But even that, I think, by calling it a sober party, gives it a certain yeah. connotation. No, let's not like, call it a sober party. No, it's like high on life. Yeah. Yeah. It's high I on spoke, life. I spoke there and I danced yeah. there and it was amazing. Yeah. And there is um, a big shift. But I think, you know, it's for people like yourself who are messengers to show people that there are alternatives, that they're are alternatives you know there was a big thing you know natural highs became a really big thing around the festivals and they were uh, based supplements that gave you energy or a lift but as soon the faster they come out the faster the government would shut them down you know and you know cannabis is still illegal in most of Europe, I think Holland is the exception, but everything gets shut down. The only thing that gets pushed at you is alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. Right. And alcohol and shamanism is known as spirits. And it's the way yeah. it's an, uh, it's an alchemical chemical that is created by certain plants that pulls you out of your body so that other spirits can jump in mm-hmm. and ride you for the night. Yeah. And like, you know, no pun intended, of course. <laughs> But, you know, the thing is, it's um, it's fascinating for me because, um, and I love everything that you're saying, and it's so true. I, I have looked at so much of the power that is getting wasted when I go out. Like, even the other night, I went out to uh, Pikes, which was amazing, by the way. It's in like Alice in Wonderland. It was it? like Alice in Wonderland meets... You know, Freddie Mercury meets, you know, I George wore Michael. George Michael. I was wearing my Metallica uh, t-shirt, which I love to rock because I love my Metallica. And I had, you know, white pants and I just couldn't stop dancing. And Pikes is a brilliant example. You will have no idea in Pikes what creature of the night that you're blessed to be with. You know, there's no show of wealth, there's no superiority, there's plenty of places to sit, but none of them have got a reserve sign on. If you want to sit, you get there. Yeah, I I loved about that. And, you know, that is the last 
or one of the oldest pure pieces of Ibiza left and you can be who you want to be and you can dance until dawn or you can sit outside and talk to your friends. It's a very inclusive rather that it's, it's, it's a funny play on words, but it's an exclusive venue, but it's totally inclusive. They don't charge on the door. You just need to know about the parties, the old school vibes. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, I was dancing and everyone was coming up to me and asking me, like, you know, some people came up to me. They're like, wow, you have so much energy. Like, what did you take? And I was like, I've had so far, um, I've had um, mono triglyceride chain oil, uh, bottled water. And that's, and I, oh, and I had uh, a, uh, some um, bulletproof um, and uh, lion's mane from from my, it's a company's Four Sigmatic. I have like my little routine that I have, you know, and just bottled water all night long. And it just keeps me. But then maybe this is something you can share because I'm a veteran, you know, I've been dancing for 30 years. And like I said, three years ago, I discovered cacao. For me, it would be the most toxic of drinks that I would have if I wasn't going to drink alcohol, which would be Red Bull to keep me up. And it's, it's vile. Yeah, I'm not a but fan. No, it's a horrible, <laughs> horrible drink. I'm not a fan. But that was given as the alternative. You don't want to, you know, if you're working, you can't, but, but you need to stay awake or you want to stay awake. And that, Something like Red Bull's a false economy. You're high for two minutes, you're down for two hours. But, you know, maybe you can help us out there. We want to be healthy. We want to be happy. We want to be conscious. We want to be, um, you know, in that state of euphoria. But we have regular lives. We have regular jobs. We might have, have, have worked all week, had problems with the kids. We just want that release, but we're tired. So, you know, maybe you could help us by pushing some natural remedy ideas and I'll help you get them into these places. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I know for me, one of the things that helps me go all night is an avocado and um, healthy oils in my body, uh, water, and uh, one of the other things that helps me is doing uh, like lion's mane mushroom tea, you know, different things that basically uh, uh, open up my system in the most natural, easy way. And literally acknowledging, you know, like one of the things I wanted to do, which I'm still thinking about is creating an elixir, but I don't want to talk so much about it because I don't okay. want to give it away, but okay. creating an elixir mm. and bringing it to the club scene that has shamanic principles and, and certain types of faculties that actually help the body to sustain energy and all of these different things. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's all about how we treat ourselves, right? And it's about what level of respect do we have for our vessels and how do we operate in that space, you know? I recently did a post about, um, you know, the VIP section and the behavior of people in the VIP section because I do get invited by a lot of different families and, you know, different people who want to have the shaman in their booth or have the shaman, you know, hanging out with them on their VIP table. And that what I see is a lot of disrespect from, and it's not from my group that I'm hanging out with, but I see it from other people. What's your thoughts on that? 
I've got no problem with people choosing to um, spend their money any which way they like, as long as it isn't disrespecting others. So it's well documented. I've never, ever been a fan of VIP culture. Have I worked in an industry where that has become predominant and the people I've worked with have had um, a big part to play in projecting that? That's true. And do I ever go in a VIP area? as little as humanly possible. You'll find me on the dance floor or you'll find me talking. Um, Do I take offence at people vulgarly showing wealth in any situation? Yes. Um, I can look at it as, you know, as a weakness of that person, Um, you know, accept that they need to do that. But I think it's very unnecessary if they need to feel superior to somebody Mm -hmm. in order to make themselves feel validated. Um, Some people, you know, it's not so black and white as to say everybody on the dance floor is a beautiful spirit and everybody in the VIP is vulgar. Yeah, no, we can't make that. It's not as simple as that. No. But there are shows of extreme wealth. I see it in Vegas. Um, I think the worst um, thing I saw in Vegas is that they now sell spray packages in clubs. So if you're not the... So you've got the, the, the people who buy champagne to toast with their friends and they just want a little bit of space. So they've bought a table so they can sit down and they want to enjoy the party from their perspective and sip champagne. Fine. Then you've got the guys or girls, generally guys though, sorry guys, but it's true, who will spray champagne over people who, do you know, I've probably saved up for this night. I've got their best dress on or best shirt or whatever and get sprayed by people who want to show their wealth, greed, I would call it, rather than wealth because, you know, you're not financially you might have money, but you're not a very um, rich person. In soul. In soul, if you would just, like, wastefulness and, and... you know, and condescending to other people, that disgusts me. And then they've developed a new level now, which is if you aren't one of the vulgar people who just spray champagne over the people who've got less money than you, you can now buy a box of cheap champagne or pomaine or fizzy brown water that isn't intended for drinking. So you can't actually drink the stuff is just to spray over other people. And where the mindset goes from there is very disturbing to me because why would you want to spend money to to just do something so vulgar? And if it was any other drink, like 
it's like there's no logic. If they, if you lined up some red wine or some, okay, take red out of it, you lined up some lemonades and, and you started throwing lemonades over people, you'd get thrown out. Right. You know, that's assault to just throw drinks over people. Right. And people wouldn't throw lemonade because it's cheap. So what is somebody screaming to say about themselves by spraying? Yeah. I mean, I feel very strong about that. I've seen people throw money in front of people. I've seen someone, I've seen a guy come in with a thick thing of of dollar bills. And while people were in the pit dancing, he was in his VIP place and he was throwing dollar bills at people and watching the money fall on them. And his friends and them were laughing and throwing it on these girls and, you know, (laughs) making it rain. I find it to be um, really insecure. It's unfortunate, you know, because I grew up in a a family with a father who was a multimillionaire. And he, and, and and I honestly believe a lot of my my uh, part of my being that's not into all of that has come because of my father. My dad was the type of person who prided himself on his Rolexes, his fancy cars, and how he um, was seen by other people by having like flown on his private jet to pick up shoes and, you know, had to get his Italian brands. And every time he went out, he had to show off everything. And he would even make comments to people saying things like, have you ever seen a house like this? I bet you don't drink this kind of alcohol in your home. And like little things that I picked up on as a kid that made me uncomfortable, you know? And I started becoming uncomfortable with, um, with having money, having wealth, you know, as a kid. So every time I could get a chance, I would give that, I would give away anything I had. A friend was like, oh, I, I'm freezing. I was like, here, take my new jacket. You know, a friend's like, oh, you have so many beautiful clothes in your closet. I'm like, do you want them? You can have them. You know, and I was that type of person. And later on, did I grow up and begin to understand my father ended up getting sued for some big situation and had to file bankruptcy after, I think it was like 20 million he lost and then he got sued again and then he had to file bankruptcy and it taught him humbleness and humility and what was more important which was connection and relationship and so forth which i was all about from the very beginning and you know people don't impress me who do those things people who impress me are people who can sit down and have a nice conversation can give a hug without patting me on the back and really connect with me on a soul level like you and i are you know and like i have more joy than just going out i have more joy just getting a house on a lake and having people come and having food healthy food and everyone just talk and play board games and dance if they want to turn on you know music go out and swim in the lake and take a new, whatever it is, I enjoy community. And I go out to dance to rev up energy, to clear things that I have people who have written me on Instagram who are going through hardships. I'll think of their name and I'll go and I'll dance for them. You know, really taking it into a very um, purposeful ceremonial way while enjoying myself, having fun, and also clearing energy, you know? And I think that a lot of those people who are stuck in that, that's where they're at in their evolution. The thing is, in order for us to be able to shift that consciousness, we have to project a higher way of being for humanity and creating and people who create these types of clubs, these venues, these ways of connecting people into a space have to be more mindful how they're building it, creating it and, and, and literally bringing it together. I remember when I lived in Sardinia, 
I would go to uh, this place called Club Billionaire, and people spend I think like sixty five thousand and fifty thousand, seventy five thousand just to have a table, right? And I remember I would I had a lot of people who invited me to come, and they would bring me to their table. And I remember one person said, "Oh, you must be really happy. What what kind of shaman gets to sit at a sixty five thousand dollar table?" And I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking more of spending time with the people who invited me. But this other table, this guy was being very obnoxious with me. And he was like, well, I have Kate Moss on my table and I have Naomi Campbell on my table and I have this person at my table. And I was like, I don't really care. So honestly, I just really want to go and dance and enjoy people and have fun. And his whole thing was like, buy more bottles, buy more bottles, show more, bring more models to his table to show off. And I, to me, I was thinking in myself, like this guy either one has a very small penis or he just doesn't have, um, the, he's not insecure enough in himself to just show up to a place and enjoy his time and make real solid connections. So yeah, I really think there needs to be an upgrade, but I also think there needs to be a consciousness. I'm glad we're talking about it. But I want to ask you a question. What, how did you find uh, David uh, Guetta? We found each other. I um, I was working for a record company, Virgin Records, and I was working with a lot of French bands, so Daft Punk, for example. And I was running my own parties and they were free to get in and we just brought the industry together every week. And all the DJs would come and all the media and but it was just a like you say a congregation 300 people every week and lots of things happened from it connections would happen again pre-internet and so people would do record deals there they would say oh I need a publicist or I need this and and get drunk (laughs) it's true and but it wasn't so much a dancing party it was a let's mingle and talk and we based it on the winter music conference and then so word kind of spread to Paris that um, about what happened in London and we used to cross pollinate and then I left that job and one of the biggest promoters in France who used to play at his own parties was David Guetta and he'd made a song um, called Just a Little More Love and it was as for fun as a hobby on his day off. And the record became a huge hit in France, but it didn't translate outside. And I left the company to go and set up my own promotion company because I was always, you know, the messenger. So I wanted to... You still are. You do it for me all the time. Yeah, I'm a little messenger. And so my thing was to share the music that I... that I loved with other DJs who could then share it with their communities, their tribes. And, you know, it was posting pieces of vinyl through the post that uh, until I developed the very first digital distribution company, which changed my life and that of many DJs, but that's another story. And then um, I was introduced to David um, by the chairman of, Virgin, who he worked with, he was French and he, he'd signed Daft Punk and he'd signed Phoenix and he'd signed Cassius and all this wave, they called it French Dutch. 
that was huge. And he said um, that I should meet David and David should meet me. And I'd never been a manager. He'd never had a manager. I didn't really want to be a manager. I just thought it was, you know, too personal and too much work. But we met and we just had this click. And going back to the original um, feelings that we talked about, the lyrics of that song was just a little more love, just a little more peace is all it takes to live a dream. We walk hand in hand. You've got to understand that one day soon we live in harmony. Now, it was written in French, English, so it's not perfect, but you get the the feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, this song is like the songs that brought me into music. We started to work together and uh, there were no rules again. There were no rules because he had never had a manager and I'd never done the job. But my business partner at the time was managing Fatboy Slim. Mm-hmm. So, and so he could guide me. And, and yeah, just it rolled from one year to another. And we sat down and, and, at the beginning, I said, what do you want? And he said, I want a gig in London. And I thought, oh, I can do that. And then it got crazy. He was making hit after hit. And he his connection with the crowd and with the people and his values and, you know, and his love for the music and his passion for the art and his compassion for people is true. So he was channeling the same feelings and principles that I lived by through his music. And so it was easy for me. All I had to do was just be the evangelist and run around and say, listen to him, listen to him. Pete Tong, please play his records on the radio. And again, we're pre-internet. The internet was just starting. It was when that dropped that everything changed for us. Um, because suddenly his music would impact all across Europe in the clubs, then on the radio, and then he formed the biggest online community. It was like 50 million when other people had five people following. And so he built his own community and his own tribe. And we sat down one day there were two things I remember. One, we were still making records that were big in the clubs. It weren't making money, but they were connecting with people and they were making people dance and that that was enough. And there was one moment he'd written a song called The World Is Mine. And I remember pulling up outside my apartment and it was a full moon and The World Is Mine came on the radio and it was the first time I'd heard it on the radio. And looking up at the moon, going, we can do this. We can do this. Come on, world. Let's. And it wasn't about owning the world, saying the world is mine. It was like, this music belongs to the world. And 
when it was mine, it was mine, yours, ours. And and I just had this sensation all over and I went inside and I rang him and I said, I think we can do this. We can We can share this. Even though it was technically an underground record, it didn't have radio and it, it, it happened. And then Paul Oakenfold, who I mentioned earlier, who was one of the the first wave of superstar DJs, he helped us in America. And then there was a second movement because no DJ had broken America even though house music originally came from America, it hadn't gone so far. And so after maybe 10 years of us working and breaking Europe and doing the clubs in America, he had a chance alignment with Will I Am and they made I Got a Feeling. And again, we're back to the beat. Will had called him and said, I need a beat, like another record David made, Love Is Gone, for the Black Eyed Peas. And because they made that record, it shifted the perception of, you could call them the gatekeepers, they think that they're the oracle, but mainstream radio in North America, the programme directors decide what you can listen to. And they said, we don't play house music or electronic music, what then became called EDM. We don't play that. And we were able to say to them, well, actually you do, because that Black Eyed Peas record is one of those records, one of those beats. But because it was by a band that they knew, they saw it as a Black Eyed Peas record rather than an electronic record. So it was a hip-hop record, but it wasn't. It was a fusion. And that helped open everything. And what was that like for you, managing him? I mean, you must have had a lot of um, responsibilities being his manager with everything blowing up and you, you know, heading this, this whole entire adventure to America, to North America, and bringing this this electronic music, you know, into the mainstream public outside of the underground. What was that transition like for you as David Guetta's manager? Um, it was very exciting. It wasn't overwhelming in the first stages. It was just exhilarating. And at the time, David and I had... We were such a tight team and, you know, like I said, he's the magician, the, the, the music maker, the creator, and I'm a connector. And when I'm passionate about something, people know. And I'm very fortunate that, that people listen when I'm really passionate and lots of people believed in him, believed in the music, and we just hit it like a fireball. I was fortunate to um, to make some really good friends who were from a different um, a different like musical genre, but similar 
culturally to us. And that was the Will I Am, Pola Molina, um, the, the whole Black Eyed Peas camp, Akon, um, and Kelly Rowland. All these people were super pros. And it was just another day at the office for them. And they kind of took us under the wing. And, and, but it was, we were playing in, we were playing in uncharted territories. So we had nothing to lose. So the powers that be didn't really pay huge attention to us. So there was nobody cop blocking me and mm-hmm. there were no sharks. Right. So it was brilliant. It was like we were running rings around people. There were promoters such as um, uh, Pascal, who does Electric Daisy Carnival out of L.A. and now Vegas. He's throwing parties in the Coliseum in L.A. for like 60, 100,000 people. And yet we're being told by some of the biggest media in America, well, this thing isn't really happening here. We can see it in Europe. And so we just took them to the party. Come and see it for yourself. And so it was almost like it was happening in America, but the blinkers were down. It was it was underground, but obviously because the States is so huge, your underground was massive or in terms of numbers, but it was still in isolated areas. And when the, the, the shutters came down and people saw what was actually happening, and David was the first person um, to, of this generation to get his music played on mainstream radio, when those stars aligned, it was just electrifying and it was... The sound, it became his music became the sound of American radio, of top 40 radio, still throughout the specialist stations. And you know, and to go to places like Coachella, you know, when they first embraced dance music fully, was kind of like doing Glastonbury for me in mm. the UK. It's like you know, we were kind of the the I used to do Glastonbury. Yeah, we were like the uncool kids, you know what I mean? You had to be, yeah, you know, we weren't Jay-Z. We weren't all these people, you know, we 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 were cool in our own little field, but, but nobody really understood what we were doing. And then when David did it, suddenly it was just everybody at his door going, I, I want some of this, I want some of this. And it seems crazy now because everybody collaborates. But, you know, after he did the record with Kelly, Kelly played it to Neo. Neo's on a plane. I want to make this track with you. We bump into Akon at, at, at just in, in, in a, an event. And David's playing in beats on his laptop. And he's like, Caroline, book a studio. They go in that studio that night. By the time I wake up, they've made a hit. And it just literally was like, it was just an alignment. That That's all I can say. It was just everywhere he put his foot, somebody would step next to him. And it was brilliant. It was phenomenal. That you sounds know, amazing. Yeah, sounds we were at the, we were, you know, and suddenly, you know, 
never released a record in America before or an album. So it was crazy. Never released an album in America before. And then the guy's nominated for five Grammys. I mean, it's, it, it was so fast and it was so incredible and it was so high and he's so gracious and he opened the doors for lots of other artists to come through. You know, the movement became what it is. And at that point, I loved it. It did change for me later when suddenly it wasn't us that changed, but elements of the industry changed. And again, it goes back to like we said in the clubs, you know, you can have the purest person on the dance floor or in the VIP section, in the industry, we had some really pure music people who just wanted to help share the message as far as we could. There were others that smelt dollars and would try and disrupt um, what we were doing. And I'm a very sensitive soul and I didn't handle that um, personally um, the best professionally, I kept it together, but personally that really kind of took the joy for me towards the end. Yeah. Um, we talked about that when we met. Yeah. Yeah. And it took the joy away and, and, but it led me to you. So, so it led me to you and I've realized through, um, tribe, um, I've been, um, fortunate to spend time with Derek now over the past two years. Um, and when I met him, I was a wreck. Um, I was depleted. I was exhausted. I'd lost my balance. My spiritual connection was was shot. Um, and we worked together and he helped me realize that that power was still inside of me and to shake off a lot of the toxicity that I'd picked up and that I'd attracted um, and to break down the barriers that I'd put up to protect me, but in all reality, it just shut me down and blocked my light and and made me a less productive shadow of my former self. So if um, ever you get to that point, um, for me... It happened for a reason, and and now I'm back blooming, and I couldn't be happier, and I have nothing but fond memories, and um, I've remembered rather than relearn. I think what it is to have those feelings of joy and happiness and contentment, you know, where from where it all first began, um, but. It is easy to lose your way. I mean, when I first met you, uh, literally, I remember the first time you walked in and I looked at you and I had this immense love for you, you know, and, but I saw a ghost in a shell, you know, I saw this powerful woman, intelligent, smart, world traveled, educated on so many different levels of knowledge and information. And I just saw the emptiness. You were just wearing all black. You came in. And I remember my, my ancestors spoke to me and they said, you have to put the spark back inside of her. 
And so every time I sat down with you, it was about rebuilding your, your inner spark. And I remember when your inner spark turned on and I, I remember the letters you were telling me while I was traveling around the world. You were telling me how you would meet with friends and they would scream to you, you're back because they could see the light and the spark inside of you. And you are not the same person that came in. And, you know, um, you have put so much love and energy, you know, your projects that you're doing. Tell me more about your projects that you've been doing with uh, United Nations and UNICEF. You did a project, was it, was it with the John Lennon? Yeah. So this is thinking something that can translate to anything, but like, when you've got a community and you've got a voice, I think it's um, it's dutiful um, to use that to share positivity. And I started to help um, a guy at the UN um, who was working directly for the then Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, and he, it was simple at first. It was just to give him the rights of a song called Without You um, for a project in Niger where they were um, trying to show the positive um, work that they do because a lot of people see UN and just think about... Um, war and breaking up of war and so I got involved helping on the humanitarian side and it went from just clearing the rights for one song and giving them the song to forming bonds and friendship and then creating some huge projects. One was called The World Needs More and we created the world's biggest Twitter wall outside um, the UN, to the UNHQ in New York. And um, it was the world needs more hashtags. We made the song, the world needs more. And then people could say, choose education or love or kindness or whatever word you think the world needs more of. And we got companies to sponsor a word. Um, David Getter sponsored love, for example. And every time somebody tweeted, the world needs more love. He had to give a dollar. So he was skinned because love was the one word that everybody went for. Um, <laughs> it was, it was funny. He was like, another love? Another. Because did you cap this? I was like, oh yeah, but we're into six figure. We'll keep going, keep going, keep going. Anyway, he's very generous. So that was um, a way. We spent the whole day with Banky Moon and he was saying again music music is the universal language and that they wanted to reach um young people globally to show their humanitarian efforts and not through um not through images of war um and not through using images of war and natural disasters and humanitarian disasters, 
but showing the survival, showing the support, showing the connection of people and and how they could overcome with with obviously the basic necessities of shelter and water and food, but also the love and the kindness. So it fitted perfectly with everything we were doing. So so we did um, that project and then the next one, they wanted a song from David, but he'd just broken up with his wife and the the, the songs kind of didn't fit. So there, I was watching um, a lot of news and there was the, the crisis in Syria. There were problems between, um, the uh, shelling problems between Palestine and Israel at the time. And every time I flicked the channel, there was something else, something else, something else. And they wanted another song so I suggested Imagine by John Lennon which is an obvious song but it had never been used and apparently there was a problem with the no religion so I flipped it and said it's not saying you can't have a religion or a faith or or a belief it's that the ultimate common denominator um, or the highest common denominator of every religion is love. So if you don't, you see it as every religion is love, but a lot of the wars are being caused between the friction between people saying it's because of my God and it's because of my God, which I don't believe. Yeah, I mean, I have a complete yeah. understanding of the insecurity that people carry between the idea of not feeling comfortable for someone else's culture or belief system and so forth. And it's one of my duties on this planet as, as a love duty to bring together and bridge cultures together um, through understanding love's awareness and, and showing up with love, which is the greater responsibility, I believe. So, so we yes. were, it was, I believe, I don't believe in coincidence. Things happen for a reason and or just meant to be maybe that is coincidence but what happened was I was told we can't use that we may not be able to use that song because of the line about religion then everybody started to whistle the song so it was Tony Lake, who's the head of UNICEF, and David Ohana, who had now moved from UN to UNICEF, which is the children's organisation and Yoko Ono, after 40 years, had called the UN that week and said, I want to do something with this song. The time is now. And so she had the song. She's the only person that can give the right. And I had the idea. So we pull in a director called Michael Jerkovac, who does lots of the Where is the Love? He did the Obama Yes We Can video, a friend. And between us, we pull together people, inspirational people from all around the world, some musicians, some actors as well, but thinkers, leaders, and everybody sang their own little line of Imagine. and. We made the video, but it was all positive and uplifting. So a strong girl in Syria, she's lost her leg and she's playing. And brothers and sisters helping each other, people who've lost everything. 
being supported by people who were giving freely. It was probably, well, most definitely, it was the most humbling and rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. And then then we presented the video to like world leaders at General Assembly. And I had the microphone passed to me by Yoko Ono. And I was like, I can't believe this has happened from me watching something and being so upset by what was going on in the world and feeling powerless about it. And then one call just for a song. And then suddenly they have been able, like, you know, we built a huge team around it. And then there's, excuse me, 128 UNICEF offices around the world. And the kids are watching this video and they're recording their versions. They've got their own version in their own language. And then to put it all together and to share the message of love and peace and togetherness and like to take John Lennon's work after all those years and for to play a tiny part in connecting again the dots to help an organization who's helping millions of people that's what if I can do it anybody can do it if it's just brought down to if you have a, a, a vision for good see it through and it can be just in the local community it can be with your grandma it can be with your next door neighbor you know it could be something as big I mean the word is imagine I just imagined it when everybody else who had you know the the means of the ability to imagine it too and the power to be able to do something even bigger it just snowballed and it became the biggest thing that UNICEF had ever done so you know what my takeaway from that is and I learned a lot from you I'm I'm really happy to have you in my life you know well um, you know it goes double back <laughs> I, I tribe join the queue official stalking direct club i'm a stalker <laughs> I, I, I i'm i'm on every you'll see my name pop up now caroline prothero i'm on nearly every live chat if i'm if i'm available and i'm certainly back on um i listen back to everything and then i follow where he's going to be and i turn up there you go. You definitely do. I do. And I love our time together too. Yeah. I love that you get on airplanes and you follow me where we go. We have so much fun together. Honey, I got on, I did taxi, airplane, taxi, boat to get to Aubignon. Yeah. I did. Yes, right. Huh? Oh, fancy seeing you here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really uh, honor you because I learned so much from you and you connect me with so many beautiful people that have really inspirational hearts who are here to create humanitarian change. And I look forward to all the amazing more things that we're going to be doing together. I 
for me, when I, you know, since the time that I first met you and the journey that we've been on to bring you back into that space of your light and your spark, and then watching what you did with that spark and all the things that you've been creating, the people that you've been connecting to, and just the stories that I hear from people around me who are your friends and stuff, talking about how it's in, it's just a beautiful um, essence of light that they see come through your being that they didn't see for a while. Mm And you I know. was out. You know, you talk about lit. You know, my my flame wasn't out. It was out, and it was doused, and and I just couldn't couldn't get it back on. I tried, I tried, and I think the 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 biggest thing that you did for me because obviously I tried different things, and was you reminded me that the power. Or you allowed me to see, you showed me the power inside of myself. And, you know, and it's not as easy as as just going and lying down and going, all right, you're fixed. It's like, no, it it was like nurturing that fire inside myself, you know, the little girl. And to to take responsibility, to, 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 to surrender, but also to, you know, to heal with you and through you and through the wisdoms and through the ancestries because I used to beg to my to my um to my angels I've always believed in angels I've always been surrounded but it was almost like I couldn't reach them because I was I wasn't authentic me and I know they didn't leave me but once I had the clarity again and once I started to follow it, like I changed my diet, I changed, I stopped drinking alcohol and I stopped abusing myself and I stopped beating myself up and torturing myself and listening to your wisdoms, which are actually so simple. You say it very eloquently and you can explain things that I know and feel. And then it's like, ah, light bulb moment. And I couldn't have done it without you. Um, and that's why I'm here. And I want to, because I'm a communicator, is to see, okay, how can I now share this with even more people to bring them back to you? Because... You know, my friends say that now because they thought they'd lost me. You know, my one friend who you did a healing for earlier today still cries every time she sees me. And I'm well now. I mean, I've I've got a way to go, but every time she sees me, she cries. Tries tears of joy. Like, we thought we'd lost you and you're back. Wow. And I am. Thank you for being so transparent. I love you so much. It's the truth. It's amazing, and 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 I and I and I really appreciate you. You know, bringing my my message of love, unconditional love, global awareness of love, um, connectivity on all of these fronts that you have access to, and I really appreciate everything. I just want you to know that. Oh. Means you're gonna make me cry now. <laughs> <laughs> so, how can um, people see um, if people want to um, get involved in some of the projects that you're doing? What is what is something that they can 
how can they see something that you that you're that you have involved in you you know you really need to um, have a book at some point mm. <laughs> you're like mm. <laughs> i mean because you have so many things so many adventures that you've experienced how can people see the the one uh the the thing that you did with uh john the john lennon the piece john imagine lennon. i mean it's on youtube and it's quite simple you just google unicef um sorry not google so it's on youtube and search for unicef imagine fantastic and lots and lots of versions will pop up so you can pick either the world version which is an amalgamation of everything or you can search for your own country and you should have an individual one and do you have an instagram do you let people follow you on instagram are you private how does that work well you know I'm useless. I've, I, I have got an Instagram account, and I've, post, I've got a big Twitter account actually. I've got lots. So of how can people follow Twitter. you on Twitter? So on Twitter, my name is just Caroline Pro P R O, and what I will do is I will get active on my Instagram account, and I'll tell you the truth. Twitter, I had active throughout all the glory and my Instagram account I only set up when the clouds were coming over and I didn't want to look in the mirror never mind see pictures so the only pictures that I've put up are really positive ones and then I just kind of got out of the habit of it Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, definitely... Know, this, uh, this, when I was active, I was on Facebook every day. I'd tweet all the time. And then when you stop, it's as abnormal to do it as it is to stop when you're doing it all the time. Right. So I'm going to find the balance now and I'll do it once a day. <laughs> Fantastic. My love, thank you for being on our show, thank our you share, for really. Me. <laughs> I say show, but I'm changing the word to share. So it sometimes like c- that, it comes yeah. out show, then I have to switch it back to share until it gets really in there, which is it is getting in there. So I thank you for being on our share. And I love you very much. And I love you too. And um, please keep us blessed and stay blessed. And um, Tribe, it was a pleasure. And an honor to talk to you. Thank you. What an amazing share to have Caroline Prothero come on today and share about her journey, her experiences, her highs, her lows, the industry, music, and all of the beauty of it all. And how we're creating community and tribe in so many ways, celebrating and creating a new idea, a new form that is being born here on earth. And how do we maintain the authenticity of it? And how do we weed ourselves away from the things that we don't need in our life so that we can have a celebration so that we can awaken possibility and we can imagine a greater world a dream whatever dream it may be and as you heard her say 
That's what it's about, is that anyone can do it. If you have a feeling inside of you, if you have a dream, you have a vision, if you have a part of you that is imagining something, don't let go of it, no matter what anyone says. Even if 50,000 people came in the room and said it's not going to work out, don't let go of it. Honor it, stay with it, stick with it, and see it through. And I guarantee you, you will see the light shining through everything that you do. I'm so happy, beautiful tribe, to have you here. I also call you to action to leave a review on iTunes. If you don't have iTunes, sign up for it and just leave a review so that the more we, we build the numbers of reviews, more people will want to listen to the beautiful medicine that can fill their hearts, their souls, and literally lift them and shift them into higher levels of thinking and being on earth. And that's what it's about, spreading the message of love. So that is my call of action for you. And I love you so much. You can follow me on Instagram at Shaman Durek. You can check out shamandurek.com if you want to take some trainings in shamanism. Sign up on my newsletter to find out what town I'm going to be in, where I'm going to be. As Caroline says, you can find out, you can fly in, give me a hug, spend time with me, all of these wonderful things, and just share in love because that's what it's about. Thank you, tribe. Bye. Bye.